So if you would, turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 John near the back. Uh, Lord willing, we're going to get through the chapter, at least introduce the second half of the chapter, probably not finish it. So the first phrase that you read in the book of 1 John is the phrase, that which was from the beginning. And we don't know, the, theologians or scholars don't know whether 1 John or the Gospel of John were written first. Years ago, I was taught that the order was that he wrote the Revelation first, and then he wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and then just before he died, he set out to write the Gospel. But they don't know that. And you could read four different theologians and get four different answers about how that was, except everyone seems to agree that the book of the Revelation was written first, somewhere around 60 uh, A.D., whereas these they place in the vicinity of 80 to 95 A.D. John, being one of the longest living uh, apostles, uh, the longest living apostle, and uh, served out his final years uh, serving the Lord Jesus, uh, uh, at least the way I heard it, and I think I get this from Fox's Book of Martyrs, Martyrs uh, serving the church at Ephesus, that he got off the Isle of Patmos. I recently heard another man talking about it, and he was saying, no, he died on the Isle of Patmos. I'd never heard that before. Now, as we, as we begin the book of 1 John, and hoping, hoping that we can get all the way through it, uh, we read an introduction that reminds you an awful lot of the gospel, and I say reminds me of the gospel. This might be the first intro that he did, and the gospel might be the second. Uh, but you definitely hear an echo of it. You see the same thing in the gospel. This is the gospel of John. Uh, I, I, I'm going to interplay between the book of John, the gospel of John, and the book of First John. So you've got to watch for that little number in the front on the screen. Uh, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And I want to just talk about a verb for a minute. I have an English teacher in high school that would turn over in her grave if she thought I was going to be talking about English. Uh, she told my mother I'd never make it through the first semester of uh, freshman English. She was right. Uh, but uh, I, I was terrible at English and still am, you know. But I, I really enjoyed studying languages, even though I didn't really retain them very well. And the Greek word there was, in the beginning, was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The same verb you find in John 1, that which was from the beginning, is a little Greek word. It looks like an N and a V. It's pronounced ain, and it's actually a, the tense of a verb that I'm reading this from A.T. Robertson, who's probably the, the premier Greek scholar, scholar of the last century. John uses the imperfect uh, to be, which conveys no idea of origin, no idea of origin for the word, simply continuous existence. So what you'll see in some modern translations when you read this is in the beginning, the word was always. See, the idea of a continuous existence. Now, when we read in John 1, 1, uh, 1 John 1, 1, that, that one that I had up first, that which was already in existence at the beginning, it's speaking of the eternality of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, one of the things that I think is infinitely practical as we look at what we're going to be facing in the next 20, 
years in this world is a solid idea of who Jesus is. I don't even like the word was because there was never a time that he wasn't. All right. That's the point of that little Greek verb. You know, while John's gospel was written around 85 or 90, more than 60 years after Jesus died, his writings in the gospel fill in much of what the other gospel writers wrote. His gospel in the gospel of John now, again, I'm going to be interplaying the two, and I know I'll confuse you, and I'm sorry. His gospel, the gospel of John, was written to convince unbelievers and new believers of the deity of Christ. So if you have questions about who Jesus is, you want to read the book of John. Um, he tells us in the book of John, again, there's no little one there in the front, John 20, verse 31, these are written. There's many things I could have written, John writes in the book of John, but these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by, by believing you might have life through his name. Both letters make use of this word, aim, in the Greek. This letter, 1 John, John was written to convince you of the deity of Christ. 1 John was written to believers in an effort to strengthen their faith and strengthen their walk. And I hope we're going to find that to be true. Especially in a time of great theological confusion and false Christianity. You know, it's easy to think that the, the early days of the church and the days when the apostles walked, they didn't face any problems, but they faced constant problems. They faced constant theological challenges. And much of this letter, people believe, was written in an effort to, con to, to conflict against, to argue against false teachings of other, other false Christians, antichrists. John will write later, many antichrists have come into the world. Uh, we'll get into the Both letters make use of this word. So I'm going to go back to, to the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word. The New Living Translation says, in the beginning the Word always existed, to pick up the idea of the tense of that verb. And the Word was always, I put the always in, they didn't, with God, and the Word was always God. In the same way, John begins this letter, uh, 1 John, with a clear indication of the deity and eternality of Jesus. His deity, the deity of Christ, is the basis of all true theologies, all true Christian theologies. It is the final declaration of the martyrs as they, sent, as they were sent into the Colosseum to die. It was the last thing they said. Jesus has curios. Jesus Christ is Lord. They died with those words on the mouth. This is the only truth they held on to more than their own lives. They held fast onto the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is Lord. And my point here is, belaboring it, I know, is that the foundation of everyone who holds true faith, a true believer, believes that Jesus Christ is the eternal God. His deity was at the center of every argument that he ever had with the Pharisees, if not every, certainly most arguments that he ever had with the Pharisees. Uh, Jesus said unto them, arguing, he said, I'm going to read a verse before what I have up on the screen. And he said unto them, you are from beneath, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. 
I am not of this world. My origin is not earthly. All right. He's, I say, therefore, unto you. Do I have that up there? Yeah, yeah, good. good. I thought I might have got ahead of myself. And I say, therefore, unto you, ye shall die in your sins. For if you believe not that I am, notice that he is italicized. King James added that because it's understood. But actually, the words there is just two words. I, I am, or I, I am that I continue to exist. There's that little continuation of a, of, of a Greek tense. In the Greek, it's ego, I, me. But in the Hebrew, all they wrote was J-H-W-H, which we say Jehovah. A, a, a restrict Jewish person would never say that word because they don't believe you should pronounce the name. They were so convinced that you shouldn't pronounce the name J-H-W-H that they now no longer know how to say his name. They haven't said it for 2,000 years. So all they have is J-H-W-H, the name that's unspoken or the unspoken one. We say Jehovah. The Jewish leadership saw these words, for if you believe not that I am he, you shall die in your sins. They saw that as a clear claim to deity, and we know that because a few verses after this, they pick up stones and they go to stone him, and it says Jesus just slipped out of their midst. So we understand that, you know, Chuck Misser was fond of saying, anytime you're, you're likely to miss a point that Jesus has made in the book of John, the Jews are always kind enough to... Uh, accentuate Jesus's point by stoning him or attempting to stone him. Uh, and, and that tells us that he said something that they're very much against. Now, while I can't explain the Trinity, not even to my own satisfaction, uh, I do believe that Jesus Christ is the eternal God. And I believe these verses indicate that. I believe you can trust the tenses. I believe that John picked his words very carefully. And I believe that this eternal God took on human flesh. Why he would do that other than love, grace, mercy, I have no explanation. There's actually no words to understand why the God of gods would take on human form, come to earth, bear our sins on Calvary's cross so that he could freely forgive us. There's no words that can explain it, but it seems to be clearly what the Bible teaches. Uh, he was, I'm back in the book of John now, he was the creator God. John 1.14. I'm sorry. He came, God came and became a man, and the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And He was the creator God. John 1.3. All things were made by Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. Uh, that word made there, were made, is the Greek word agenita, and it means came into existence, whereas when John speaks of Jesus as the eternal God, he uses a past continuous verb. In other words, in the beginning, God was already existing. But when he uses the verb here, were made or was made, all things were made by him. He uses a word, all things came into existence through him. It's by means of the words of Christ. So if you're wondering when you read Genesis chapter 1 and you read the verses that say, and God spoke and he said, let there be light, and there was light. It was Jesus that spoke those words. All things were made by him. All things came into existence through this Jesus, all right? If Jesus is not the God of gods, the eternal God, then, Paul writes, we're dead in our sins. We have no hope. So the basis of our faith is the deity of Christ. And the purpose of that basis is that if he were not God, he would have to die for his own sins. 
but because Jesus was eternal God, His death is eternal and makes it possible that God can look on us and He forgive us. And He can forgive us. Next, now I'm still at that first phrase of 1 John 1, 1, the second half of that now. Uh, he, he reads, that which was from the beginning in verse 1, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, I think this is going to be your last English lesson, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled. All right. In English, that verb, have seen, have looked, have handled, in English, that's called a present perfect tense. Now, I remember when I was taking baby Greek, the teacher said, well, this is just like the English present perfect. And I'm going, mm, don't know what that means. <laughs> <laughs> learned more English in Greek than I learned in English class. But he explained it by washing his truck, and that really helped me. If In English, if I say, I have washed my truck, what that means is I washed it and it's still clean. I have washed the truck. But if I used a pluperfect in the English, I had washed my truck. What I'm saying is I washed it in the past and it's already dirty. I have washed my truck. You would expect to go out and see it clean. If I said I had washed my truck, like it was a waste of effort, we're saying you go out and expect it to see dirt all over it. John is saying that the results of his meeting with Jesus are still very much present with him. That's the point. Now, in the Greek, it's called something entirely different. It's called a first aorist perfect indicative. I expect you'll remember that. First aorist perfect indicative. But it has the same definition. It's something that happened in the past but it has a present result. He said, we heard him and we remember the experience of hearing him speech. We saw him and we will never forget his face. We looked upon him and we studied him at great length and we clearly remember what he was like. We touched him. He is real. He is human. He existed physically. Now, you know these words in your heart because on that day that you met the Lord Jesus Christ, that became fixed in your heart, that experience. And although I cannot explain to you what it was like, I can tell you that I remember as clearly as it were yesterday, well, actually better than yesterday, what it was like the first time I met the Lord Jesus, what that experience was like, what calling on Him was like, what first time I ever believed was like. I have heard, I have seen, I have looked upon. If we're going to stand through difficult times, we have to first of all have a great concept of who this Lord Jesus is. And secondly, we have to hold on to what we got when we met him. That's the point. Now, Robertson goes on and writes, he said, three sentences are here appealed to hearing, sight, and touch, combining to show the reality of Christ's humanity against the docetic Gnostics and the qualification by John's experience to speak. Now, we'll go into Gnosticism later. I don't want to spend a lot of time on that, but there was a group of, of supposed Christian preachers that said that your flesh has fallen. It is. Your flesh is going to die. It is. Your flesh is sinful. It often is drawn into sin, but they kind of blurred the lines, and they said flesh is sin. Flesh is drawn to sin. Flesh has fallen. But is flesh sinful? I don't think so. But as they began to logically work through it, these Gnostics said, therefore, Jesus must not have come in the flesh. That's their argument. The ascetic Gnostics said uh, he appeared in the flesh, but he wasn't really flesh. 
Now, many believe that this letter was written to combat heresy. There's a couple of heresies that it will address. False understandings, if you will. And many things that are written here are written to confront the teachings of these false prophets. This docetic Gnostic thought that he had no manifestation of physical existence. Jesus wasn't real. He was an imagination. This was logical to them because they felt like flesh was sin, so a, a, a perfect holy God could not have flesh. I don't think they're right. John didn't think they were right. The term docetic arrives from the Greek word to seem. It is a seemed like he was in the flesh. Now you go back and you read what John said. He said, we heard him, we saw him, we gazed upon him, and we touched him. He was real. So Jesus was a real physical being. There's a phrase in, in the, the book of the Chosen, in the, the series, The Chosen, where Jesus looks at Peter and he goes, I'm a man. You know, and that, that's speaking to that Bible teaching that Jesus Christ came in human form. He lived a life just like we did. He had all the temptations that we had. He faced all the barriers that we faced. Later, John will address the problems of another group of, of Gnostics called the Antinomian Gnostics. And they, their teaching was since the flesh has fallen, uh, it doesn't matter what you do in the flesh. Southern Baptists are accused of the same thing that they'll say about us. They'll say, listen, you believe once saved, always saved. You get saved, you get your ticket and do anything you want. That's Gnosticism. That's not Christianity. You don't do anything you want. You don't live your life any way you want to. You live your life the any way that Jesus wants you to live it. You know, there's, there's nothing about uh, living in sin and going to heaven. And that's a lot about what this book is about. Verse 2, for the life was manifested, and we have seen it and bear witness and show unto you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested unto us. Manifested is a word that describes something once hidden but now revealed. That, that's what the word describes. Jesus was, past continuous, Jesus was with the Father, hidden out of our sight, but now Lately, this thing that was hidden has now been brought out in our sight. It's been revealed to us. Thus we believe that Jesus, thus we believe that Jesus is the divine manifestation of the unseen God. Now, if you don't understand this, you're in good company because the apostles didn't understand it. Theologians don't understand it and I don't understand it. So don't expect to really understand it. Even his disciples had trouble with it. Philip, in a discussion, said to him at one point, uh, Lord, if you'll just show us the Father, it would suffice us. Uh, it, it would, that's what we just, we don't, that was John 14. We don't know where you're going. We don't know why you're going there. We don't know how you're going to get there. We don't know who you are. And Lord, uh, Jesus, if, if you just show us the Father, it would start to make sense. And Jesus said to him, he said, Philip, have I been so long time with you, and yet hast thou not known me, Philip? And Philip goes, I guess not. He that has seen me hath seen the Father. And the disciples go, huh? And I go, huh? And he says, how do you say then, show us the Father? Jesus is the visible manifestation of the one we call the Father. Oops, it didn't click. 
John, back in verse 3, says, That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you, that ye also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. We're transitioning now, back in 1 John. And we find a purpose clause here. I'm sharing this with you, he writes, that you may also have fellowship with us. Now, I want you to, I want you to pick this up. A clear understanding of who Jesus is. A clear understanding of why He came and a clear ability to articulate the experience you've had with Him. That which we have seen and heard, this is what we're declaring unto you, that ye may also have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. John is writing, I'm not teaching theology here. I'm not teaching grammar. I'm telling you what I experienced. That's your witness. That's my witness. My witness is not going out and teaching uh, theology. My witness is not going out and trying to find a way to open a conversation with someone. My witness is to talk about what Jesus Christ has done in my life. It's my own personal experience. That which we have heard declare we unto you that you also may have fellowship with us. You know, people can argue theology. They can argue translations. They can argue books, but they can't argue your personal experience. Let me tell you, what Jesus Christ did for me. That's what John is saying. This is, in essence, our every attempt to witness. This is the core value of everything we share with other people. We are not trying to convince someone of something they don't believe. Neither are we attempting to teach theology to people who don't want to learn it. Our purpose in witnessing is to tell others what we have experienced when Jesus Christ came into our life. That's the key, you see. I love the way Mary Magdalene said it in The Chosen. She's trying to explain to Nicodemus what happened, and he wants to know what happened, and he, she goes, I wish I understood. She said, all I know is I was one way, and now I'm another, and the difference was him. You know, I can tell you what my life used to be before I met the Lord Jesus Christ. I can tell you what my life was after I met the Lord Jesus Christ, and the difference was a little prayer that I prayed while laying in a bed one time, in my home on the Eastern Shore, Maryland, I'd read a book that Jesus told me that Jesus had died for my sins. I thought it was the most incredible, unbelievable thing I'd ever heard. But I said to God, I said, Father, if this is true, if Jesus really did come and he really did die to pay for my sins because I'm a sinner, I said, I recognize that I'm a sinner. And I, I, I seriously would like this to be true for me. If it's that talk about a faithless prayer, if this is true, let this be true for me. That was my prayer. My life changed that day, and it's been changing ever since. And the changes have affected every avenue of my life. From that moment forward, my life was different. John uses the illustration in here of light and darkness, truth and lies. And my life was like moving out of darkness. I used to explain it years ago like I was stuffed in a dark closet and God gradually opened the door and the light came more and more clear on my life and more and more. He didn't just put a floodlight down and show me what a worm and a sinner I was because I think it would have killed me. What he did is he gradually exposed the truth to me that I could deal with my sins one at a time. And I clearly remember driving home from work one day and we had some quote unquote, put this in air brackets, uh, leftover lumber in the back of my truck from a job we had just done. And I was driving home and I, I'm a brand new Christian and the Holy Spirit says to my heart, 
what, what's that in the back of your truck? And, and I said, oh, it's just some leftover wood from the job. And what are you going to do with it? And I said, well, I got some work in my house. So I thought I'd use it. And he said, whose wood is it? And I realized I'd been stealing wood off the job for years. We all did that. It was what everybody did. I knew guys that would order extra just so they'd have some leftover, leftover wood. You know, the Holy Spirit reminded me that the lumberyards take that wood back and credit accounts for it. You know, I was stealing that from my employer. I didn't realize that. Day after day, we discover through walking with the Holy Spirit what our lives were like and what he intends them to be like. Did I get to one for you? All these things we write unto you that your joy may be full. We don't, we don't witness to condemn people. We don't witness because we think we're better than they are. We share the truth of God's story because we know that in Christ is the only happiness people will ever find. You know, in Christ is the only joy. I used to think I was happy until I got saved, and then I realized I'd been unhappy my whole life. And after I became a Christian, I realized what true joy was. Not that everything was perfect, don't get me wrong. This then is the message, uh, 1 John 1, 5, which we have heard of him, and are declaring unto you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. God is absolute holiness. Any life related to Him, any relationship with the one true God will result in lives radically changed away from sin and darkness and onto holiness and light. There's no way you can affiliate or associate with the God of the universe who is a holy God and not have your life manifest what's happening in your life. So if you're not seeing evidence of transformation in your own life, you need to go back and check that original condition. Did I really surrender to Christ and did He really change me? Before we lived and moved in absolute darkness, it's as if we were asleep, mostly unaware of the damage we were doing and the evil of our own sinfulness. And I have to tell you, I'm still learning these lessons today. And I believe I was saved in August of 1971. And I'm still discovering things that I'm doing wrong and still having to confess and forsake sin. But now we know, because we have the Holy Spirit in our lives, now we understand. Now we see our own evil and we can deal with it. Whereas the world is asleep. They don't see it. I have described my life uh, after that day as if I were standing in a closet and gradually the light was being opened. And I thank God for that. I could see more and more of my own sinfulness every day and the damage of my choices. Those things that I loved in the past that I thought brought me joy, now I began to see were destroying me. And I've often used, I've often used the illustration of smoking. I was a, I was a 10, 10 pack a day smoker. Uh, I, I, I couldn't quit. I, I was just so addicted. I couldn't sleep if I didn't have a carton of cigarettes on the dash of my truck. And uh, one day I heard the Surgeon General come on and he said that these cigarettes are killing you. And I finally understood. That's the way it was when I got saved. Sin was killing me, but I didn't see it. I just finally understood. Ever so slowly, over the past 50 years, I've begun to make better choices. And that growth goes on today. If we say that we have fellowship with Him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. If you don't see these 
personal changes in your life. Not those changes that He made in me, but personal changes that He made in you. You need to go back and check your relationship. Because the experience of walking with the Lord Jesus Christ is an experience of coming from darkness and into light. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. That's the basis of the church. That's the basis of our relationship, that we're both walking along this path, this lighted path, lighted by the Holy Spirit, walking in the light that He has shown us. Every one of us has a different path. He's, he deals with different sins and different problems that each of us have at different times in our life. He dealt with one thing first and then another thing and another with me, and that order would not be true for you. All right, But we're all on the same path, and that's why we have fellowship. We are all doing the best we can to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from our sins. It is a shared experience of discovering this path that makes us a family in Christ. Those behaviors I once did that I thought made me happy, those old behaviors that I once loved, now bring me shame and guilt. Another way you can tell that you've experienced being born again is to find yourself caught up in something you used to do when you were lost and see how you feel about it. I used to steal all kinds of things. I... I I had a lot of sins, but one of them certainly was theft. And I used to think if I could get out of the hardware store without getting caught with whatever I was stealing, that was a good day. You know. When I, I became a Christian and I stole something, I felt terrible. It wasn't a good day. I, I felt like I'd failed somehow. I felt like I needed to return it. I needed to make restitution. There was a change. It's that change that you're looking for. It's that, that assurance that the Holy Spirit is demanding of you something that's beyond yourself. And that you can no longer simply take something and feel comfortable. Or in my case, I don't know what your particular sins are, but in my case, I could take something or I could say something. I wish I could say I don't swear anymore, but I'm so much better than I was that uh, when I swear now, I feel defeated. I feel like I failed. I feel terrible. And that's the proof of life, see. That's the proof that the Holy Spirit is operating in your life. You're responding to God's holiness. And all of a sudden, now that the light is on you, you see how far we are from where we're supposed to be. That's the proof that the Holy Spirit's in your life. You, you know, we tend to beat ourselves up and think, I'm a lousy Christian, I'm this, I'm that. You know, I, I, I just keep failing, I can't stop failing, I can't this, I can't that. Yeah, that's all true. You can't stop failing. You, you probably do beat yourself up. You do feel terrible about it. And you probably should feel terrible about it. When I steal something, I should feel bad about it. There's nothing wrong with that. That's right. But the point is, you're alive. You're not dead. You're alive. See, that's a proof of life. These, these uh, corrections by the Holy Spirit, these senses of failure, this sense of grief, that's a proof of life. Just as hunger for the Word is a proof of life. A desire to be around other Christians, it's a proof of life. 
The ability to hear his voice in your walk as you go along. You know, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. The fact that you hear him say, what, what is that in the back of your truck? You know, what did you just put in your pocket, Bob? Uh, nothing, you know, Lord, nothing. Uh-huh, let's see that, nothing. That's a proof of life. You should rejoice in that. Where am I? I'm lost here. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. We cannot say we've never sinned. A lot of people make a deal about this. It says, uh, look at the verse. Uh, if we say we have no sin, singular. If we confess our sins, plural. People will say, well, that sin singular, singular represents our sin nature. If we say we have no sin nature, we have no propensity to sin. We have no problem with sin. If we say these kind of things, we're just deceiving ourselves. Uh, but if we take our individual sins, plural, and confess them one by one, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So not only do we have to know who the Lord Jesus Christ is, we have to have a personal experience of the Lord Jesus Christ. We also have to keep short accounts. We have to take those failings. Lord, I'm sorry. It's a box of brass screws. I'll put them back. You know, we have to confess our sins and do the best that we can to turn from them. But the promise is if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just, just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We must not deny our sins or our sin nature, our tendency to do wrong. We must not deny our propensity to sin. Instead, we must confess it. But also, every time this sinful nature surfaces in our lives, we have to speak it and confess it. These acts of sins, we must confess it and we must turn away. And the promise is, He's faithful to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The two characteristics you have to have to be saved. All right. Two requirements for salvation. Paul tells it to the Ephesian elders. He said, I kept back nothing that was profitable unto you, but I've showed you and I've taught you publicly and from house to house, testifying both to the Jews and to the Greeks. Why? What's necessary? What did I tell everyone? In every house I went in, Paul said, in every congregation I spoke to, testifying both to the Jews and to the Greeks. This is Acts 20, 21. I don't have it up here. Uh, repentance toward God and faith toward the Lord Jesus Christ. Repentance is saying, yes, I stole this. I'm sorry. That's repentance. See? And faith towards the Lord Jesus Christ. Please forgive me. You can't be saved without repentance. No person is going to be in heaven thinking they got there in their own merit. No person who's a Christian thinks they're good enough. No one is good enough except the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the God of gods, the King of kings, and Lord of lords. He's our only hope. It's the only way. Let's pray. Thank you, Father. I know that this is a difficult message to listen to, and I know it's complicated, but the truth is simple. We are sinners, and we need the Lord Jesus Christ. So, Father, we confess our sins to you. I pray that if there's anyone here today that has never made a personal confession and a personal commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ, I pray that now, while our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, this will be the day that they, they look up to you, Father, and they say, Father, I do know I'm a sinner and I need a Savior. And Father, I, I pray that they will say, Lord Jesus, come into my life and save me. I believe you died 
for my sins, and I ask you to make it true for me. And Father, I know from my own personal experience, gosh, 50 years ago, I know their lives will change forever. So I pray that they would do so in Jesus' name. Amen.